Welcome back, everyone. That is my favorite sound. Time for espresso. Sometimes one has to forget about the business of the day, have a nice espresso, and travel to another world. Sit back and relax and prepare for another adventure in the world of the Octopus Wars. As Professor Champignon stated, it is a world that contains more truths than reality. I don't know if I really understand what that means, but it's interesting. The world of the octopus wars contains more truths than are contained in reality. Someone once asked me, what defines this world? I said that fans of the world don't really know how to define it. I don't even know how to define it. But we can certainly tell when something belongs in this world and when something does not belong in this world. It's a world that really does have a life of its own. Well, today we are in for a real treat. We have part two of The Shallow Breather, which part two is the conclusion of the tale. The tale is important for many reasons, including that it introduces Don Boca. Don Boca was famous for his many sayings and for wanting to lay low and not stand out and not be noticed. He never wanted to be a hero, but more than once, he ended up being a hero. He reappears in later tales, especially in Phobos Devoto. I should add that Augustine is another character who premieres in this tale and also appears later in Phobos Devoto with Don Boca. I went through the archives and found an audio recording of Don Boca himself saying in Spanish, in his voice, his famous saying, the secret of permanence is in transcendence. El secreto de la permanencia es la intrascendencia. That was great to hear that. Before we begin the tale, here are some more facts about Don Boca. It was rumored in the provinces that Don Boca could always be found in a motionless sitting position, with his head pointed down to the ground, but careful observers learned that every so often he would stretch his arms out wide, make a face of desperation, and utter one of his many sayings like, if one is not in the jail cell or the hospital bed, then one must be content. He also would say, when tango dies, life on earth will no longer be bearable. Or, his most common saying, life is a sad tango. At other times, his motionless sitting position would be interrupted by his raising his head like a bird to look around and see if anybody was approaching him. He usually planted himself in a strategic location somewhere in the city of Mendoza. He liked to sit at the benches outside the Cafe Astoria or the benches outside the Galaxia Bar, where passersby could chat with him a bit about the news, football, which is soccer or tango. He would stretch out his left arm, wiggle it up and down and say, this is as far as my hand can go. Anything beyond this is simply outside my control. My hand can only go so far. I can't clean all these leaves, nor solve all the problems of the world. It's 1946, and everything is a darn mess. But the truth is that 
I didn't create this world. This is what people fail to understand. One is not in control of everything, Don Boca would say. He would add, I cannot stop the wind that will clog the acequias, nor the wars that are occurring overseas. According to the older gossips of Guaymachen, once in a while Don Boca would regret not having more regrets in life, with regret being what he called the price of one's adventures or ambitions. But such regretting about regrets occurred rarely. Only once every six months or so, Don Boca estimated. To Don Boca, this was a very small price to pay for being cautious in what he perceived to be a very dangerous world. Life is a hurricane, he once cautioned schoolchildren playing football near the church. Well, thank you for tuning in. I also want to encourage listeners to visit the website and review the wonderful drawings that were sent in by the fans. There are four galleries of such drawings. Eric Weiner sent in a beautiful drawing of Professor Riverola at the Cafe Astoria, holding his beautiful statuettes, including the Egyptian statuettes. And Ursula James sent in a beautiful drawing of the Brujo Madridi, the witch Madridi. And Madridi is drawn in his kitchen, the place he loved to be. Ursula James also sent in a wonderful drawing of Dr. DeVartolo in his study, his consultorio. Another fan, Julia Stoffa, sent in a photograph of the actual oven that was used by Chef Tandil of the restaurant Caldo Major. And you could see that wonderful oven, wood-burning oven, on the website. Please be sure to visit the website. And as always, feel free to email me about the podcast a podcast which is about a world from long ago and very far away. You may have noticed that episode 11 features some new music. I should add that all the piano work you hear on the podcast is performed by an eight-year-old girl. Yes, that is correct, by an eight-year-old girl. And now, with no further ado, we will continue the shallow breather as the submarine ascends through the South American continent approaching Brazil. The Shallow Breather Off, near Brazil, the Mapinguari lurks through the unwanted lands with thick bushes and thick leaves, where man and animal live in fear. Everyone in Ramacho cheered as the shallow breather, the submarine, descended into the river. We were all very proud, continued Don Boca, telling me the story that I waited my whole life to hear about the fate of my father and the mystery of the three frontiers. When everything was loaded and all the doors were shut airtight, the vessel was submerged completely and started moving forward, very quietly. All one could hear was a constant deep murmur. Your father kept reminding me and our two Guarani assistants that, to remain undetected and unattacked by this creature, whatever it was, we had to move about softly within the vessel. No rocking the vessel from side to side, only gently walking within the vessel. 
Looking out the windows, one could see bubbles, each the size of a pebble running up alongside the outside of the glass, all the way from the bottom of the submarine to the surface of the river. The weather conditions were ideal. When the currents were slow, the water was as clear as glass. We saw fishes of all kinds. We could also see many sunken ships, some of which were huge and had the tip of their hulls piercing out of the water's surface, like the snout of a river turtle pointing through the water. Operating the vessel underwater required the continuous monitoring of a lot of gauges and complicated equipment. To establish a professional atmosphere, your father would refer to me as Ingeniero Boca, which means Boca the engineer, or he would sometimes call me Piloto, pilot, because most of the time it was I who was entrusted with piloting the shallow breather. As I navigated the large vessel, your father would be reading gauges, pressing buttons, turning gears, twisting knobs, lowering levers, flipping switches, and doing countless other things that only he was mentally capable of doing all at once. I followed each of his orders diligently, always saying, Yes, Captain. Yes, Captain. As the submarine hummed through the waters, I noticed that your father was filled with pride. His eyes began to tear up. He realized that he had used his genius not just to build underground studies or a mechanical turtle, things which the Mendocinos joked about, but to do something that could help his family and our nation. The first week was as pleasant as a luxury cruise. When your father found some time between tending to the electronics, he would take notes about the river creatures. One notebook of his was titled Fauna, and the other was titled Flora. One section of the first book, titled Fishes of the Paraná, had beautiful drawings. It's a shame I never got those notebooks from him before we went our separate ways. For the first time in our lives, we felt like adventurers, alive. Like we were really doing something worthwhile and making history. As the shallow breather was gliding through a narrow passage just two feet above the river's bed, we saw sun rays pass through the waters. There would be six or eight rays illuminating here and there. Sometimes the diagonal rays would illuminate tall, never-before-seen, tree-like weeds with thick, tubular, yellow and purple stems. Your father kept taking notes about how the rays were diagonal and the vegetation was vertical, but the fish, lobsters, turtles and other animals moved in an organized fashion through horizontal planes. I never understood why he was so fascinated by this. For some stretches, the light penetrating the warm waters allowed us to witness a heavenly, unexplored world. No submarine had windows that were larger or better suited for this kind of expedition. Rocco Martin, one of our Guarani crew members, could not help but keep looking out the windows. He claimed that, though he had fished since before he could walk, he had never seen what the fish and other fauna of the Paraná look like when they are alive and underwater. You see, the fisherman thinks he knows everything that is down there, he said to me, but in truth he only knows that which bites the hook. That was what Rocco Martin concluded, and he was right. We all realize that the fish look different when they are in their element. This time, unfortunately, it was we who were outside our element. We saw large silver fish, probably sabalo, tarpon, 
resting near tall reeds, positioned as if guarding a fort. Though they remained unmoved, their eyes would follow our vessel. What on earth is that large thing of silver and gold, they must have thought, but they were so fearless that they didn't abandon their posts on account of the passing of the shallow breather. Your father liked to navigate deep, only inches from the river's bed. We were so close to the ground that we could see orange flounders skirting off from beneath one pile of sand and into another pile of sand, always seeking new shelter under warm mud. Be careful with the bottom rocks, I would always caution your father. He would smile and remind me that he had built a safety mechanism, a system of 20 water jets that aimed water downwards that would allow the shallow breather to hover a few feet from the river's bottom without ever touching it. These jets kept pushing water down on the bed of the river. Your father would always direct our attention to unknown species like freshwater prawns that were colored red and yellow, large serpents painted in bands of pink and black, and 50-foot catfish of the Surubi family with sharp teeth sticking out of their mouths. After seeing a large turtle with big diamond-like eyes, we felt a submarine quickly descend 10 meters in one drop. We then realized that we had left a narrow passage and entered a large area, one as large as a small sea. Your father inferred this and thought that this body of water must be occupying a previously unknown crater. It was one of many hidden swamp chasms that we came across navigating through the mighty Paraná. In this sunlit abyss, schools of fish, dorados, sabalos, and bogas could be seen everywhere, moving from one place to another according to some unknown underwater traffic system. It was strange. The bottomless waters were clear as day, but the top waters were murky. Somehow, your father found a way to escape the chasm. When the submarine rose to the surface, rising through the brown waters, the crew enjoyed a break from living underwater. It was so strange, the top waters were brown and muddy, but deep below it was clear, with giant caverns full of clear water, lit by the sun, somehow. When we were finally over water, we all took a deep breath when exiting through the ceiling and taking our first walk on the roof of our vessel. From there, Rocco Martin caught ten catfish. One of the surubi he caught was four feet long. He also caught three piranhas and two large golden dorados, the prize-winning fish of the region. He caught these with only a tree branch and a long leaf of marsh grass. With charcoals, we grilled the fish and underneath the sunlight, we ate while sitting on the roof. It was like one of those magical moments we celebrated as kids. It was after the first week that through a periscope, I noticed that Juan Vittoro had been following us along in a small motorboat. He, has, he was following us all along, safely positioned about one mile behind us. Your father grinned about this, saying, Send our beloved Captain Vittoro this message in a bottle. And this is the message that your father sent him. It said, It is too dangerous to enter the Paraná system above water. You are welcome to join us in the shallow breather below the water surface. 
but I knew that Vittorio would never join us and that he would rather study things from his own safe distance. Things started getting darker after the first fortnight. The vessel was rocking more than usual because of a never-ending tropical storm. It was the middle of the night and we did not know our exact location within the river system. Though we knew that we were approaching the mighty delta of the Paraná near the province of Corrientes. As I steered the vessel, your father kept looking at the maps. Surrounding our river was nothing but swamplands illuminated by a full moon. It was an eerie situation. We were deep underwater in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by nothing and covered in a blanket of a dark tropical sky. One fear was that we would collide with a rock or a sunken ship, as there were many sunken ships in the river system. The rest of our fears were, of course, about that which we all fear most, the unknown. We were not in our element. We set the two golden sensors of the facade of the shallow breather to operate at full power. The frontal fog lamps now shone at full intensity, creating two cones of bright light within the dark, murky waters. Everything was black in that river, except for the two cones of light produced by the shallow breather. Once in a while, a fish or some other creature could be seen skirting through the light. Your father said that the lamps would not attract the creature because it was sensitive, not to light, but to vibrations. We soon realized that we had entered yet another swamp chasm. Your father saw that our faces were paralyzed with fear, so he took over the steering wheel and commanded us to turn off the emergency lights, drink some wine, and get some rest in the hindquarters of the submarine. We did this as the shallow breather pushed against underwater plants and violent underwater currents. Land of any sort, even the swamp land, was very far away. Deep underwater, the nose of the vessel would sometimes climb upwards, sometimes it would climb downwards. We heard the most frightening creaking sounds, but the shallow breather held together. She was engineered so well and built so well. Every so often, a violent current would slap the face of the submarine from one side to the other. Your father did an incredible job as a submariner in those treacherous waters. Only drinking a lot of wine kept the rest of the crew from thinking that we would perish in a swamp chasm of the Paraná. It was in the middle of the night when everybody else was asleep that your father saw something, something terrible, which will never be understood. Coming out of the dark abyss before our ship, it went straight up to the front window of the ship and stared right at your father straight in the face. Being a conservative scientist, your father said that he would not tell us exactly what he saw until he could verify what it was. But when telling us this, we concluded by the sight of his pale complexion that he had seen the most God-forsaken thing ever. At dawn, when the brown waters were calm, he ordered for the submarine to surface at the port of the city of Goja, just south of Corrientes. We beached the submarine on the sand so that its bottom half was still in the water, but the front muzzle was sticking out, like a whale's head looking out on the land, or like a seal with half its body perched in the water. 
We disembarked there and were delighted to finally touch dry land. Rocco Martin and the other Guarani were dancing for joy. Like any good group of Argentines, the crew immediately sat down at the nearest boliche, El Marinero. A boliche is like a little restaurant or cafe. El Marinero was an outdoor cafe restaurant at a small port. The establishment was surrounded by strange trees that, like weeping willows, had thick vines and leaves that descended from the tall branches all the way down to the ground. I recall that all the wooden tables were damp and the ground was wet. Nothing anywhere was completely dry. It was at this moment at the cafe that I realized that I should never again leave my beloved dry Mendoza. Like men always do, the Guarani and I started poking fun at each other about who looked the most terrified the night before. Rocco Martin concluded, The world is not scary until one is scared, but then, when one is, it becomes absolutely terrifying. We all laughed together. How terrified we were. Your father did not join us in our celebration, but kept pacing along the river, as if in deep thought. The crew ordered hot cortados, which we had not enjoyed for over two weeks. You see, everything on our ship was cold. We sat down and started drinking our morning coffee and eating croissants cooked in lard, reaping the prime benefits of civilization. Next to us, we saw a pudgy man reading a newspaper. We realized it was no other than Juan Vitoro. Gentlemen, he said, looking at me and the two assistants. And maestro, he added, looking at your father. Did you notice upon surfacing that there is oil laminating the front of your submarine? Please note that the two golden sensors in front are no longer gold, but black. It looks like you came face to face with that which you were seeking. He pointed to the front of the shallow breather. It was obvious that the front had come into contact with a large thing covered in oil. You are correct, said your father, who started to approach us but kept looking at the submarine, running his hand through his blonde hair. He started pacing around just a bit before turning to us. It was at that moment that he made his famous and often misquoted El Marinero speech, the El Marinero speech, which I will try to repeat verbatim in his professional, professorial way of speaking. Esteemed Juan Vitoro and crew members of the Shallow Breather, the events of last night have revealed to me that we are facing a thing, if it can be called a thing, that is much more powerful and dangerous than what our country has anticipated. It would be irresponsible for me to report what I witnessed without first obtaining further corroboration. But let me assure you that it is the most horrible and powerful thing that you could ever see or imagine. I can conclude only three things. The thing dwells in the depths of the river systems of the three frontiers. It is capable of slowly but reliably destroying our country piece by piece by devouring all our cows and last, the shallow breather must be made to go as fast as possible so that I can catch up to the thing 
and prevent future attacks against our country. He then looked at me and said, So we will need to set all of your engines to full force, Ingeniero Boca. No more fish pedos. That is, no more fish farts. We must go full force. No, I immediately protested, claiming that the stealth capacity of the submarine would be compromised and that the vibrations and the hissing sounds of the engines would attract the horrible thing. Your father looked at me with the most serious face that I had ever seen on a living being. He said to me, Yes, Ingeniero Boca, that is the plan. Everyone, including Juan Vitoro, was motionless. Your father then turned to Vitoro and said, Detective Vitoro, I am certain that you have already surmised that this mission is no longer the kind of enterprise that is suited for the bohemian spirit. It is not for the engineer, not for you, not for the two Guarani. Vitoro folded his newspaper and stood up to respond to your father. Yes, maestro, said Juan Vitoro. You could not be more correct. This thing that you have looked at in the eye is a type of evil that we like to know about only through legends. It is bigger than we are. No one sitting at that table disagreed, and we all looked down in cowardly shame. We were all tired, frightened, and we just wanted to return home, to have some mate and hear a Sunday soccer game on the radio with our loved ones. You see, we were human first, adventurer second, unlike your father. Juan Vitoro looked at us and said, Feel no shame, for one man's destiny could be another man's curse. Vitoro turned to your old man and asked, Maestro, any small chance that you will return home with us? Your father picked up his coffee, looked to the river and said, This thing began as an ambition to satisfy my insatiable quest for knowledge and to rid my family of future financial concerns. But now, now that I have seen what I have seen, it has unfortunately become much more than that. Now I have no choice but to go all the way and to go alone. It is a matter of national security. He took the last sip from his coffee and savored it as if it were his last. I thought, how does one feel knowing that one may be drinking his last cortado, one of the greatest experiences on earth? Even the waiter came by and set down his tray of dishes to hear the last part of your father's El Marinero speech. If I had been less ambitious in life, said your father, maybe I would not be the first in line to deal with this problem, this thing that must not exist. But the facts of the matter are that I am the first in line, that I am capable of dealing with it, and that I brought the special equipment, including mirrors, necessary for dealing with it. I did not tell this to Ingeniero Boca. Time is running out for our country. Because of my ambition and conscience, I have painted myself into this tropical corner, far from my home and climate. Given what I know now, 
and the principles I live by, there is really no choice. We then cleaned the submarine, washed the sensors, loaded additional equipment, put all the engines at full force, and watched your father and his silver and gold shallow breather submarine descend into the river in reverse. Your father's young eyes and the two golden sensors faced us. With the engines at full force, the shallow breather now made a loud hissing sound and it spewed high-pressured steam from its lateral jets as it reversed into the water. We saw your father descend alone slowly into the water for the one last time. The engines were so strong that the vessel now resembled more a war machine than the expedition ship he and I had created. It now stood out, not as a shallow breather, but as the loudest thing in the environment. Because of this, I knew the vessel was no longer safe. As it reversed, birds flew away, fish scattered, and crabs hid under rocks, all because of the loud hissing and metallic sounds. As the submarine descended into the waves of the Paraná, we caught a glimpse of your father's face behind the front window. He looked very serious and did not make eye contact with us. Instead, he kept looking at all the cranks, levers, and buttons that he had to tend to for this special mission. But he knew that we were all watching him, so he gently nodded to send us a gentleman's goodbye. The last thing we saw was the name of the vessel, the Shallow Breather, painted in italics on the forehead of the submarine, the same way that city buses paint destinations on their facade. That was the last time that anyone saw your father or the legendary silver and gold submarine. Till this day, I could see your father's face as the shallow breather descended into those brown waters. Whenever I pass a river or small stream, in my mind I could still hear the steam from those engines operating at full force. In the international newspapers, the end of the cattle massacres and disappearance of the shallow breather was simply dismissed as a South American thing. Vittoro was classy enough to spread the word that if your father had not descended into those dark waters and had not continued the mission on his own, our fine country would have paid dearly with no cows and no economy. Vittoro would tell everyone, you see, in this country, it was really true that there was no one second in line. What he meant was that if your father hadn't decided to do it, perhaps no one else would have. The cemetery was pitch black for five minutes, and then its night lamps flickered on. Some lamps turned on and then off again. Don Boca looked at them and said, That's how one's life begins and ends usually to no consequence. But that's not how your father's life was. We sat there thinking about what happened as we watched the moths attack the dim bulbs. They're chasing a dream, added Don Boca. After observing the moth for half an hour, Don Boca looked at his watch and declared, If I didn't respect my wife so much, 
I would say that this kid of mine is a real son of a gun. Out of frustration, he said all this louder than usual. He spoke too loudly, and his voice attracted Augustine, who happened to be just three tombs away. Pucha, mumbled Don Boca, looking to where Augustine would be coming from. This is why I don't like to raise my voice, he whispered. A slender, immaculately dressed man came out of the darkness. What a treat to run into you two gentlemen at this late hour, when the hallowed grounds are empty. Empty, that is, of the living, said Augustine, showing his boyish grin. The color of his perfectly pressed clerical shirt matched his carefully combed hair, which surrounded his youthful face as if it were a small halo. To the east, we could see what looks like the city of Mendoza turning her shoulder to nap until dawn. At this late hour, the only city lights I can see from here are those of Dr. DeVartolo's penthouse study. I am surprised that I ran into anyone here at the sacred Chacarita at this late hour. Would you like some Moscatel? I always carry some in my picnic basket, and I happen to have three cups. Don Boca once told me that Augustine gave people glasses of wine so that they would not be able to escape easily from his long religious monologues. Aren't you going to finish your wine? Augustine would ask when someone was planning to exit after hearing more than enough about angels and demons and the apocalypse. We started sipping the Moscatel that Augustine gave us, and we looked to the west, where we could see the dark horizon of the Andes, only because the mountains somehow became darker than the rest of the sky, as if they were challenging the night's darkness and expansiveness. Augustine continued, Night falling on the Andes is always both peaceful and eerily treacherous. Like a dark cloud, said Augustine, with his smile illuminated by the lamplight. At night the puma looks for moonlit lagoons, and the condors perch on the highest branches of the tallest poplars in Upsashata. That tall point over there is the mighty Aconcagua, the tallest mountain in the western hemisphere, he said, pointing to the horizon. Augustine then sat on the edge of a marble slab that protruded from the black tomb that was next to us. Out of respect, he said, I will polish it tomorrow, quickly wiping the surface with the cuff of his sleeve. A monologue began just as Don Boca predicted. I could not help but hear that you were speaking about the mystery of the three frontiers, those enchanted diabolical lands far away in uncharted territories. It is because of what lurks there in those untamed lands that we the people of Mendoza were never able to have the honor of having your father rest in peace here at the Chacarita in the appropriate place. The greatest tragedy for a Mendocino is to die abroad, far away from the safety of our mountains and tall poplars. Augustine said to me. Thank you, Don Augustine, I said, sipping my Moscatel. He continued. Instead, 
His resting place is now a giant coffin of aluminum and steel, buried hundreds of feet deep in the weeds and black waters of the Paraná, waters darker than our Moscatel. Ages ago, the Guarani sang about what your father may have encountered in that thick bush. Off, near Brazil, the Mapanguari lurks through the unwanted lands with thick bushes and thick leaves where man and animal live in fear. This tragedy occurred because this world, with its swamp chasms and pits, is a realm that is owned by the unnameable. He who was cast down from heaven, the fallen one, whose name I dare not say, said Augustine, pointing to the statue of angels in the center of the concrete pond. Please don't utter the name, Don Augustine, said Don Boca, who started looking with fear at the gargoyles, the broken fountain, and the horizon. Unfortunately, Don Boca missed last Sunday's Mass, Augustine said to me. But it was at this particular Mass that the Monsignor told of a story that I had heard many, many times before about how the second-in-command of our dear heavens began to covet more than what the Almighty had set for him. As an angel, this second-in-command had another name, one that I dare not utter, but that is different from the name he was given after he was disgraced, when his beauty was turned into the most wretched horror one could ever imagine, with yellow eyes, horns, a goat tail, and the stench of sulfur. Don Boca took a sip of Moscatel and said, Don Augustine, I, I missed the last mass only because my son was dyspeptic, but I will be at the next one. You mean tomorrow? Verified Augustine. Yes, of course, I mean the mass tomorrow, replied Don Boca, swallowing a gulp of Moscatel. Seated on the tomb and looking at both of us, Augustine continued his monologue. Through schemes and lies, this second-in-command started turning angel against angel, introducing greed and avarice to the sacred world of the heavens. He built an army of angels to try to dethrone the proper king, but his mission failed. Michael, Gabriel, and the other archangels defeated him in the greatest battle ever. The unnameable one was then banished forever, but the war is far from over and continues for eternity. The gargoyles and holy water are the first line of defense against the desperate hunger that these creatures have for souls. But there are other lines of defense, like the condors and your father. Twelve years ago, when you were studying in Buenos Aires, every Mendocino stood witness to a horrible invasion of evil creatures that came from the south, from Tierra del Fuego. The creatures looked like crows, but were purple and black and the size of horses. In the middle of the night, when the church bells rang three times, these beasts would call out a horrible cry and leave the tallest sycamores of our Cordillera, filling the night sky and heading toward our city, looking to descend upon the first moving thing they could see. We Mendocinos learned the hard way that, when night fell, we had to keep our city in complete darkness. No candles or late-night parishadas, barbecues, were allowed. Though we could not see the creatures flying above us, we all felt that they were there, circling and looking down on our city, waiting for an opportunity. 
After four months, the large purple and black crows mysteriously disappeared. These were giant creatures. No one knows why they left, but Madridi had a theory. He said that the condors of our Aconcagua got fed up with the unwelcome visitors filling up the night sky and blocking their paths. The crows were, it seems, blocking the flight paths of our great condors. So the condors decided to chase the crows away to the north, all the way to Salta. Those evil crows were as big as horses, said Madridi, but our Aconcagua condor is even bigger, the size of a horse and buggy. You see, as in the case of the crows flying above in the night sky, bad things are never seen, but their presence is always felt. Protect your souls, Augustine said, shaking his finger. Protect your souls. Don Boca nervously covered his stomach with a hand holding the muscatel. He raised his large eyebrows and moved his eyeballs from side to side like a lighthouse scanning the dark seas. He kept checking that nothing strange was occurring in the necropolis. Don Agustin then turned to me. What your father did was what had to be done. The gossips who say that he suffered from wanderlust simply have no respect for the real history of our nation. The crew came close to evil, but it was your father who, underwater, looked evil in the eye, face to face. At that moment, he knew what he had to do. He went ahead and did it. He successfully contained that bad thing in those untamed lands, the three frontiers. And he kept that thing from returning to our sacred pampas. How unfair that few know of this story and that there is no tomb in Mendoza to honor his sacrifice. Instead, the silver bullet that he built to pierce the heart of the beast is now his tomb, lying in a forgotten and unknown abyss. No one is able to leave flowers at it. No one is able to clean it and trim the weeds growing around it. No one is able to tend to it the way that I tend to these tombs here every day. His sarcophagus rests underwater in a world of snakes and piranha. Devils run by many names, including serpents, kukos, fulko, manduruktu, iznashi, evil crows, and the campesinos' bad lights. And then there is the term mapinguari and the Ayo Harlequins. A wind blew away every single leaf that had covered the marble floor in Lucho's box. The wind was so strong that it even removed the leaves that were stuck in the gel of the concrete pond. Agustin, Don Boca, and I looked up at the wind and then at each other. Agustin smiled as if he knew what was going on with the winds and the heavens. To Agustin, everything is a sign from above, Don Boca once said, pointing to the sky. Don Boca was terrified, holding the muscatel tightly against his stomach and raising his head once in a while so that his owl-like eyes could look from side to side. He started rubbing his stomach, trying to keep his digestion from being ruined. Augustine continued pointing up at the sky. But do not worry. He up there knows where your father's sacred tomb is. And he up there knows what your father did for our country. You see, it is the same old story all over again. Good thwarting evil, pushing it back into the hole from which it comes. 
It is a war that will continue until the apocalypse. May that glorious day come in our lifetime. Please no, whispered Don Boca, becrossing himself. Augustine finished his monologue and bid farewell in the cordial manner that was customary in our province. Don Boca and I were left thinking about everything that Augustine had said, about how, just because of one angel who wanted too much, there was a war in the heavens. I turned to Don Boca and said, I guess the fallen one wanted it all. He wanted it all, leading to the creation of hell. After another period of frightening silence, this time for a few minutes, Don Boca finally said something. You see, pibe, I told you that ambition is no good. And that concludes The Shallow Breather, a tale about many things, including the high price of ambition, and about Don Boca's perspective that it is important to lay low and that the secret to permanence is in transcendence. Please tune in next time for the next tale from the world of the Octopus Wars.